invite you to look with me to God's Word this morning on this Communion Sunday to a very familiar chapter, one we've looked at probably, I guess, five or six times before in my time with you, but it's a chapter that draws our interest many times because it speaks so explicitly about the Lord's table and things we are to do and think and not do and not think as we come to this table. I always marvel at the ways in which God giving His Word to us that we believe really is His supreme revelation, it it comes in a human package. And by that I mean here we have some of the best and, and most detailed instruction about the Lord's Supper, but it's, it's in the context of a church's disobedience and misuse of the Lord's table. So interesting that, that even in reproving us when we go wrong, God gives us valuable things. I have a couple of emphases to bring out of this this morning as we think about the communion table and some young people joining us at that table for the first time. Listen as I read 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen through verse 32. In the following directives, Paul says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval? When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord <coughs> excuse me, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have even fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord... We are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. This is the Word of God. Even in this day and age when so many families barely find occasions anymore to be together as a whole group around a table because of busy lives going in every direction, 
It's certainly important still to teach children that there are right ways and wrong ways to behave and consume food at a dinner table, ways that make eating pleasant for everyone who is there in ways that are courteous if you happen to be a guest in someone's home. And so if someone is always talking with their mouth full or you have one member who always grabs four pork chops the first time the platter goes around before other people have even gotten one, or you have a son who takes his fist and scoops out mashed potatoes with it, you want to say gently, I hope, but firmly, that is not the way it's done. Those are not the manners that we would have at a family table. Well, the table of Jesus Christ is certainly the most important banquet at which you will ever sit in your life. And the communion table of the Lord is, is of course, not a dinner, not a meal that, that fills you up. Some of our men were here last night having a steak out with great big steaks and uh, potatoes and all that good man kind of food, and they surely, I think there was chocolate cake involved, and they went out of here, I'm sure, quite stuffed, quite full. Well, this table is not going to do that for you. But it is nevertheless a feast that is beyond all comparing. The very small tokens of physical food that you receive here represent gigantic spiritual realities, the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. They are tokens or emblems, symbols of his death as a sin sacrifice for all who receive him in faith. And we need to remind you time and again that there are right ways and wrong ways to come to the table of the Lord. There are, in effect, table manners to be observed. 1 Corinthians 11 was written to correct these believers who were going ahead rather ignorantly and and selfishly. They had turned a celebration, just think, within a short generation from the time of the cross. There in the early church, they were already making a selfish abuse out of something, just now hardly paying any attention. I suppose (coughs) we're not sure exactly what was going on, but the picture that you seem to pick up is that maybe they were even bringing their own uh, supply of wine or food, and, and those who had much were going ahead like gluttons, and some came poor and had practically nothing, and they paid no attention to one another and virtually no attention to the Lord whose table they were celebrating. They were trampling on the honor of the Lord, insulting him and insulting his people. And so Paul spoke here about what I call communion table manners. And it's not just an issue of polite behavior, you know, please pass the bread or whatever. It's a a matter really of very deep issues like Who belongs at this table in the first place? And once we know that, what should be our attitude? What should be our heart concern as we come? Not to a mere ritualistic observance, but to a matter of the deepest kind in affirming our spiritual lives. The first emphasis I would make to you here from 1 Corinthians 11 is that the obvious one that's written all over this passage, the Lord's table is not something to be trifled with. It may be that you, for much of your life, have thought, well, this is just one of those rituals you do when you go to church. 
And nobody's ever even explained to you that it wasn't just for everybody. But it's not for everybody. There are people who should stay away. There are people who should abstain, who should sit and and observe and think, well, I'm not in the heart condition I should be in to receive these things. And Paul implies here the rather shocking news that there were people in Corinth who had grown sick and he says even died because of their sinful abuses. And I'm sure that set them wondering, well, who is that? Who is he thinking about? And God was directing Paul to write this, so we assume that it was true, of course. Maybe you're surprised to know that not once but many times in the Scripture, the Lord shows that not just any old way you decide to come worship Him and and any old attitude in which you do it is acceptable to Him. The Lord reveals how He should be worshiped in rather specific terms. And He takes His worship seriously. There are some times when His displeasure with how He's being worshiped breaks out in remarkable form. I won't try to go into all of these, but you think of... of, uh, Cain having a sacrifice he brought to the Lord of of vegetables and garden goods while Abel's bloody sacrifice was the one the Lord accepted. Well, God had given instructions there, and Cain was obviously disobeying the instructions. I always think of Numbers chapter 3, a very shocking incident where the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, were themselves the priests in training. These are the two sons of the high priest of Israel. So they were numbers two and three in the ranking order of the priesthood of Israel. And these two men doing something that's not specified very much, it says they offered strange fire in the presence of the Lord. Somehow they were sacrificing in a manner that God was against God's instruction. And for them came death on the spot. And it says there, very remarkably, that Aaron, their father, the high priest, was silent when he observed that. Silent, I think, because he knew that his sons had been disobedient and they had offered God something in worship that was not what he asked for. Well, we know in in various ways in our own society that it's wrong to trample on certain symbols of great realities. If you take an American flag this morning and go stand in the downtown square of of Lancaster and pour gasoline on it and light the match and, and then trample it under your feet, you're certainly making a statement about this country, aren't you? You're abusing the symbol that represents our country. And so, God says, you can abuse the symbol of that tremendous reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. Should we be surprised that God actually wants a kind of invisible fence? In fact, some of you probably don't know it, but we use that term in our book of church order that gives ministers instructions. We talk about fencing the Lord's table. Every time I have the words of institution, I briefly tell you who should be here. And we call that fencing the table. What are we doing? Are we we putting up... uh, you know, metal fence with barbed wire on the top and say, keep away? Well, there's the table of the Lord should be a place of great and open invitation. But there also should be this solemn statement that it is to be respected. And these are things of God that are not to be trifled with. I'm sure many of you are familiar and even have in your own house perhaps the, 
electronic dog fences that we've got today where you bury a wire, I guess, in the ground around your property and your dog's got the little transmitter collar that gives uh, him or her a, a good shock if they try to, to transgress the boundary that you've set for them to, to live within. I once knew a, a very small dog that somebody had that, that was so determined to live willfully and live its own way that he accepted the shock to go through that time after time. He could not be trained to accept the shock of the dog fence. Well, there are people, too, who are like that. They don't care what the Lord has said. They don't care about boundaries. They're going to do things their own way. But the Lord says you may even put yourself in great harm, great jeopardy. Do we know that perhaps some of us have suffered misfortune in our lives or illness or whatever? because of trifling with or trampling on the things of the Lord. I'm not prepared to point those people out to you. I don't have that kind of revelation from God this morning, but I would say that the principle that was announced here in the New Testament church is still a principle. God says, don't take lightly my table. Well, then we would ask the question, how do I go about making sure that I don't abuse the Lord's table? Well, the answer is primarily in verse 28 of our text today. For simplicity's sake, we're hardly going to try to cover everything that's in this text. But verse 28 is really the central place I want to bring before you. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. This is one of the most important parts of God's instruction or fence, if you will, that's around his table. Self-examination. The philosopher Plato said four centuries before Christ, the unexamined life is not worth living. The word to examine here is a word that means to to try something or test something to see what it is made of. Specifically, it applied to metallurgy and the idea of, of melting metal to see what alloys or impurities might be within the metal. The Lord is saying, Try yourself. Look at yourself. Take a hard and close look to discern who you are and what you're made of. Psalm 26.2 has the psalmist petitioning God saying, Test me, O Lord. Try me. Examine my heart and mind. You know, we're able to deceive ourselves. But we ought to be praying and say, Lord, I want to be your man, your woman. And so I I ask you to give me the clarity of sight to see myself as I am because I might be fooling myself or, or caught in an illusion about who I am. There are several very specific areas for examination which are always in view when we talk about the Lord's table. And I'm going to put these three in front of you today. There may be more than three, but we'll just consider these. <coughs> and these are pretty basic things. But yet I believe there, there are things that need to be always emphasized in the church, and our young people need to think of these things. First and foremost is this area of examination, asking yourself this question, do I trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? That is the most fundamental examination. That is the examination we've put before 13 of our young people, and having asked them now for a number of years to say, wait don't come to the table yet. Wait until we can sit down and, and have you say 
in a mature and hopefully sincere way. Yes, Jesus is my Lord. You see, there's been an argument back and forth in the church at various times in her history about the Lord's table. There have been some who've said, oh, the table ought to be for just anybody. doesn't matter if they just walk in off the street. It would be a good thing if they would come. And by getting involved in this, maybe they would draw closer to the Lord and their hearts would be changed. There was a real incident of that in colonial history as a man named Solomon Stoddard, a great monumental ministry in central Massachusetts was that of Solomon Stoddard in the early 1700s. He was basically regarded as a Protestant bishop. He wasn't, a, he wasn't an Anglican. He was congregational. But there he was in central Massachusetts, and people from a territory all around looked to Solomon Stoddard for wisdom. Well, Stoddard's understanding of the Lord's table was that it could be used as a converting ordinance, he said. And he, he thought everybody should just be welcomed, and as they participated, they would think of the Lord, and they would perhaps be drawn to him for salvation. Well, along came the more famous grandson of Solomon Stoddard, whose name was Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards took over the church that his grandfather had pastored for more than 30 years. Edwards himself was there 10 or 15 years and followed the practice of his grandfather in saying all were welcome, but he was convicted in his conscience that this was not what the Scripture taught. And he finally more or less took a stand before his congregation and his leaders and said, look, if you're going to come to the Lord's table, you are going to have to present some convincing evidence by testimony to the elders. This seems very basic to us, but it was almost revolutionary when Edward said it. You are going to have to convince us by testimony that you know Christ. Well, guess what happened to Edwards after 24 years as pastor of that church? They threw him out. They threw him out over a simple matter like that. Because people said, no, no, we don't, don't erect standards for something that we've just always been entitled to. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You can't remember somebody who you don't know. You know, it's ridiculous to tell a person spiritually dead, come and remember Christ when they don't know Christ. And so the first question we ask is, do you trust Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you truly say he is the way, the truth, and the life? Nobody comes to the Father any other way except by him. He is the bread that I'm hungry for, the thing that will alone satisfy me before God. 2 Corinthians 13.5 has a, a word that says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. That's the first question. Are you in the faith? Are you looking to Christ? If you can't answer that in a clear and understanding way, then you want to stay away from the Lord's table. But perhaps the Lord would be leading you and convicting you that you need to find out what it means to give your heart and life to Him as Lord. Well, there's a second examination question, and that is, have you publicly called Christ Lord before some congregation of His gathered church? Now, here again is where our young people come in today. We believe that in the order of the New Testament church, God has given to the elders what we call the keys to the church. The keys to admit to communicant membership, to the table of the Lord, those who truly profess Him. And so we listen, and we ask to hear new members 
young people in the communicants class, tell us, who is Christ to you? How did you come to know him? What is your background? What understanding do you have of him? And, and we hear all kinds of different accounts. Not everybody gives the same fluid account. Some stumble, some tell it hesitantly, some have tears in their eyes. And actually, we rejoice at those tears in the eyes because many times that's a mark of great sincerity that they're telling of something quite important to them. Of course, there are too the, the rare occasions when the elders of the church use the keys of the church the other way. There may be those who have been admitted to the Lord's table and to the membership of the church who are living in a flagrant, disobedient way and in open sin. And the elders would have to say to them, we suspend you from the privilege of the table. We can't send the police to arrest you for your sin, nor do we desire to. But we can deny you the privilege of being at the Lord's table. Because you are trampling on him, perhaps, by living an arrogant life that is in complete contradiction of that which you profess. You see, Romans 10.9 says it's not all just the private issue of what's in your heart. That's what some people will claim today. Oh, it's, what right do you have to examine me? Well, the church has that right. It's more than just your private thinking. Romans 10.9 says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's not just private faith. What we call the Holy Catholic Church, that great universal church of all denominations of true believers, is not just a private matter. Thirteen young people of our church today have stepped forward and said, Jesus is my Lord. They are identified with that universal church of Christ today. Now, Of course, this creates a situation. There are children among us, young children, who we know have made a first-time profession of faith in Christ at age five or six or so. I have realized that uh, later this month of June, in about three weeks, I don't know the exact day, but I know it was the last week of June in 1958 that at eight years of age I trusted Christ in a conscious way that was meaningful to me and asked him to be my Savior. I'll be a half century old in Christ by the end of this month. That's a great thing. That's better than any other birthday. I don't want the other birthday. Forget about it. That's a great birthday. I'll take that one. And we know that there are young people among us who've done this. They may be as young as five or six, and they have trusted Jesus, and and they are put in a position of saying, well, here's the Lord's table. Here are these elements. They're coming by me and by my family, but, but my mom and dad and the pastor says I shouldn't partake because I haven't publicly professed Christ. Can't I do that when I'm six? Well, here's a judgment call for the elders. We don't have a definite instruction of the Lord here. It's a matter of wisdom or discernment. But when we look at this issue of examine yourself, we look for some measure, at least, of maturity. Now, when is a young person mature? I've known some rather mature seven-year-olds. I've known some very immature 37-year-olds. So it's certainly a judgment issue and sometimes an individual case. But to try to get some balance and some regularity in the church, we've made a judgment call, and we've tried to err perhaps on the conservative side by saying, let's wait till that age of adolescence, about 13 or so, when the young person is beginning to mature and think more clearly about many things in a more balanced way, and even though they might have known Christ for five or six years, we'll ask them to come at that time and hopefully give us a declaration 
of their trust in Christ in a public manner. There are, of course, and I'm not going to even go in this direction today, those who, who believe in what is called pedo communion, child communion. They would say even the infant in arms should be given the communion elements. Well, you know, without going into a huge subject, the big argument there is this verse, 1128. How does that infant examine himself and obey this instruction of the Scripture, which seems very clear? The third question to answer Besides, do you know Christ? Besides, have you declared him publicly to the church? Is this one. Do you hate, hate, and sincerely repent of all visible known sin in your life? Here's the thing that should occupy your quiet time as the communion elements are being passed each time. Searching your heart, examining yourself. What am I aware of? What jumps out at me, at least? You know, you, can't, you cannot possibly look into every nook and cranny of your behavior and thinking, but what does God convict you about that you know is displeasing to him? And are you sorry for that? Are you literally a, a person who despises the fact that still as a believer you displease your Lord and fail him so much? Are you aware that you are unworthy to come to this table? You see, here's the irony. The table is for those who know that they're unworthy. And they even know what their unworthiness looks like. It certainly is not for the person who comes and says, well, I'm doing good. You know, hey, I'm about as satisfied as I could be with myself. You're in great danger. You're in great spiritual danger. That is what you're able to say today. A true sense of your unworthiness always before Christ, even as a believer who has known him and who was indwelt by his Holy Spirit, you know that, that God is still working out in you that sanctification, that, that application of his salvation. And there are things that break your heart as you think about how slow your progress is. There is for me. And the Scripture says a broken and a contrite heart. God will not despise. All these are what he means, that we must judge ourselves lest we meet eternal judgment that would be condemnation. Having examined yourself in these ways, if you can say, yes, I've declared Christ as my only Lord, my only hope in heaven and earth. Yes, I've declared that publicly before his church. Yes, I'm almost overwhelmed with my unworthiness to have his grace, then of course you should come. For you, the fence is open. The fences are down. And this table is for you. We always come knowing our unworthiness, but yet knowing our marvelous acceptance of our God and Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. With the hymn writer as we come, we should be ready to declare, here at this place, here would I feed upon the bread of God. Here will I drink the royal wine of heaven. Here I would lay aside each earthly load. Here taste afresh the calm of sin forgiven. This table is for you if you belong to Christ and examine yourself. 
And Father, I pray that you'd give us the grace to do that today. Once more, in renewal of this wonderful transaction of justification by grace through faith made possible in Jesus, we thank you for him. He is our only reason and qualification for being here. We receive these things in his holy name. Amen.